I would say that any corporate executive who is involved in international commerce or international investment nowadays needs to be informed about political risk. Welcome to Baker's Dozen, a podcast series about geopolitics from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm your host, Roger Baker. Geopolitics is a term that's often misunderstood and misused. In the media, anything seen as disruptive between two countries is called geopolitical tension. In academia, there are ongoing debates over whether geopolitics is a tool of power and oppression or something that explains state behavior. Geopolitics as an idea, though, is seeing a rapid resurgence, particularly as U.S.-China great power competition is on the rise. Over the last few episodes, we've taken a look at key countries and regions through a geopolitical lens. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Len Hochberg, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and the U.S. coordinator of the Mackinder Forum, to talk a little bit about geopolitics, why it's useful to add a geopolitical perspective to your toolkit. Len, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So, Len, in your background, you were uh, one of the founders of the Center for Geopolitical Studies, which uh, was one of the predecessors of Stratfor and and actually one of the founders of the early form of Stratfor. You're also, uh, from more than 20 years ago now, one of the founders of the Mackinder Forum. And both of these have focused very heavily on geopolitics. Um, Why and how did you get into this geopolitical field in the first place? I think it began when I was uh, growing up. Uh, My father was a member of the Merchant Marine, and for many years he would travel the world uh, visiting places like Russia, India, Latin America, Western Europe, the Mediterranean, and many other places as well. And he'd come home with these uh, stories about uh, other countries, other peoples, other places, and I think that uh, that awakened my uh, appreciation of the fact that the world was a much larger place than the locality in which I grew up. I also uh, had the opportunity while uh, growing up to uh, visit uh, a number of seaports. Um, and when I was uh, visiting the seaports, it occurred to me that there were Uh, very different places than uh, typical cities. Uh, You'd drive up to a dock, you'd see the stevedores offloading uh, the ships. Uh, They'd be using uh, uh, forklifts to to, uh, uh, bring goods onto uh, uh, land and over to the warehouses uh, from which the uh, goods were dispersed across the country to uh, retail establishments. That vision of uh, bringing goods from overseas to the United States and then and also shipping them out was something that uh, alerted me to the fact that uh, seaports were windows to the world, uh, especially windows economically to the world. And so uh, I, uh, I came to appreciate the fact that uh, It was the seaport that was the place where uh, the nation state uh, interacted 
geoeconomically with the wider world. Uh, later, much later, uh, in graduate school, uh, I had uh, a desire to study uh, comparative history. I was uh, working in political science, and I wanted to be able to uh, extend the uh, thinking of political science into earlier periods, well, well earlier than, say, the aftermath of World War II. And to do that, uh, I came to the conclusion that the, uh, one of the ways to uh, proceed was to ask around in the sociology department and in other departments to find out if anyone was doing uh, comparative history. And I was very lucky at Cornell to discover that Edward Fox, uh, who had written History and Geographic Perspective, was teaching in the history department. And he had developed a theory of European history that was uh, based on a geographic, uh, uh, massive geographic fact that what occurred along the coastlines and the navigable rivers of Western Europe was fundamentally different than what, than what occurred inland. And the two societies had grown up uh, in various uh, uh, states uh, in their territories, and that these two societies, one that was maritime and commercial, and another that was uh, territorial and administrative, uh, would uh, occasionally engage in contests for power uh, over what kind of regime would be installed in these various uh, nation states. That insight gave me an opportunity to begin to do comparative historical work and to incorporate an early interest in geography into my uh, studies uh, in graduate school and uh, ever since. So, so it's interesting, two things that seem to come up there that are somewhat connected and somewhat um, opposed to each other. One is the recognition of the differences of places, that there, there are lots of differences around the world. And that idea is sort of exciting. And the other is the concept of connections. What are the connections or nodes in the way in which these places seem to come together or interact with one another? Yes, that's exactly so. It seems to me that one issue in geography is the diversity of places and the realization that what is close to one another, what is proximate, ought to be similar. And uh, because when geographers uh, look at places, they also look at regions and similarities. But of course, there are uh, connections among the places that sometimes lead to uh, differentiation, spatial differentiation, it's sometimes called. And one way to approach that was uh, pioneered by another one of the people I encountered over the years, a professor uh, who taught at Stanford, a man named G. William Skinner, uh, who developed a theory of regional systems analysis in order to understand the uh, differentiation of space in agrarian systems, notably for China, uh, prior to uh, industrialization. And um, what Skinner was able to show was that the uh, river valleys of uh, Chinese regions defined by watersheds were fundamentally different than the upcountry areas 
of those watersheds. And so changes occurred as you moved up country and uh, the villages and and market towns tended to become more isolated, whereas as you moved down toward the uh, base of the river valley, uh, there were uh, more dense sets of connections in terms of uh, administration and uh, movement of goods and peoples. And so uh, he built a series of models based upon regional systems analysis and began to apply those uh, models not only to China, but also to Japan and France. And uh, I was at Stanford at the time when he was uh, doing some of that work and uh, team taught courses with him uh, when I was in sociology at Stanford and when he was teaching anthropology there as well. Clearly, there's the, the two pieces. There's the geographic component and there's the relationship of the geographic component to people. And and I guess at its most simplest, that is geopolitics, right? This is the, the, the place and the pollet. Um, to, how would you define geopolitics or how, how should we help people better understand geopolitics so they can start thinking through that geopolitical lens? Well, I think that your initial comment is exactly correct, that geopolitics is an overused phrase. And it can be heard in uh, the lecture hall and on television, and it's used as a very loose synonym for international strategic rivalry. Um, however, there are more specific definitions of geopolitics. And I believe that at its root, classical geopolitics is the study of interstate conflict in geographic perspective. Uh, we know that states seek uh, to create a favorable environment for the projection of military force, uh, for the uh, projection of political influence, cultural values, economic opportunity. And geopolitics then uh, focuses on uh, alliances, uh, access to strategic goods that are essential for survival and uh, during wartime. Uh, also, it focuses on the uh, concentrations, the geographic locations, and the loyalties of ethnic groups. And finally, perhaps, it also uh, tends to uh, examine the location of natural and artificial barriers and carriers for the movement of weapons, materiel, and armed forces during wartime. So uh, geopolitics has several components. Uh, one of them is geostrategy, that is the interaction of geography and military affairs. Uh, it also tends to encompass or be concerned with uh, geoeconomics, that is the use of economic policy to secure uh, geo political ends, uh, and it's concerned with the uh, social geography of states, uh, that is, the presence of uh, ethnic groups as minorities, and whether they are discontented or uh, not, and how uh, that might facilitate the uh, political influence by an adversary. All of these are the various components of geopolitics. I think that uh, one of the great strengths 
of geopolitics is its uh, interdisciplinary focus. When students are taking courses in many of the social sciences, the emphasis tends to be on analysis, and uh, that's perfectly appropriate. Uh, in geopolitics, there's a sec another uh, emphasis, and that's on integration and synthesis uh, of various uh, bodies of knowledge in order to get a ever more complete picture of the nature of international rivalry and conflict, the causes, the course of such conflicts and their consequences. I think that this is a absolutely critical feature of geopolitics. That is its effort at integrating uh, distinctive bodies of knowledge into a more coherent whole. It's as if one is trying to put together a very complicated puzzle, each piece of which is a different fact or a different piece of a theory into a picture that the picture itself is evolving over time. And you want to be able to uh, see the picture and see how it changes. And uh, that is one of the goals of being, of being able to integrate knowledge in this fashion. The, the idea of synthesis, I, you know, I, I note uh, clearly um, goes back uh, to Alfred Mackinder, who, who didn't really use the term geopolitics. He preferred to refer to himself as a geographer, um, but, but emphasized that, that there needed to be a space in academia, particularly as knowledge increases and then there's more and more specialization, that there needed to be a place for this synthetic uh, uh, assessment, this pulling and teasing together of each of those other broad pieces. And we talk about it here a lot at, as you, you, you integrate um, geography, politics, economics, security, society, history, and technology, and look at how each of those interact and play with one another to ultimately create a cohesive whole. It's sort of a tapestry approach um, to to understand the world and, and tease it apart. And it, it brings an interesting set of disciplines because on the one hand, you need to know where and how to find and assess those discrete pieces of information and, and discrete fields, but you also need that, that big picture top-down look to start synthesizing it and weaving it all together. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right about that, that it's necessary to both have a sense of ground truth and, an, and a perspective from afar, uh, and simultaneously to be able to do those two things. I, I, after years of attempting it, it, I have to say it isn't easy, but it's, it's extraordinarily worthwhile. The attempt is extraordinarily worthwhile. McKinder um, himself in 1919 wrote a book called Democratic Ideals and Reality. And what he tried to do was to write a uh, history of the geostrategies of land-based and maritime powers and how they interacted with one another since the uh, ancient Mediterranean through World War I. And uh, in many ways, the book is an effort also to describe what would likely be the uh, outcome of World War I uh, at Versailles, at the uh, peace uh, negotiations. Uh, the book is uh, a remarkable 
uh, historical, geographic, and national security synthesis that takes into account economics and uh, the transformation of technologies. The most important, of course, being the technologies of transportation and communication, because those are the technologies that when it, uh, when it comes right down to it, those are the technologies that alter the significance of place as strategic entities. The building of railroads, Mackinder understood from his early essay on the geographic pivot, uh, the building of railways, most notably the Trans-Siberian Railway, altered the face of Eurasia, creating the possibility of a, what he called a Eurasian heartland, an area that essentially was uh, Siberia and some additional uh, significant uh, territories uh, that could, if united, pose an enormous threat to maritime power. And it was that uh, insight that has uh, motivated policymakers in maritime powers in Great Britain and in the United States to realize that through World War I, World War II, and the Cold War, that Eurasia must not be unified. It must remain fragmented in order for maritime power to remain significant and vital, and in order for it to protect the uh, sea lanes. So Mackinder, for whom we named the Mackinder Forum, his intellectual contribution stands astride much of the policy making formulation and implementation when it comes to national security for maritime powers through the 20th century and into the 21st century. As we look at geopolitics as a as a field or as a way of thinking, a way of studying, a way of observing, clearly, as you've laid out several times, um, it has tremendous value in national security and strategic security constructs. Um, in what other ways or in what other fields uh, can it be helpful um, I mean, I would argue that that taking that viewpoint helps you whether you're in global economics, um, whether you're trying to just understand um, some of the relations between nations. But why is it important, and and how does one uh, get a, get a head start in maybe not an maybe not necessarily having to go into an academic study of geopolitics, but at least in getting that push towards thinking geopolitically? I think the easiest way is through the academic world. My colleague Albert Chapman and I wrote a essay for uh, undergraduates and students who would be graduate students uh, called So You Want to Study Geopolitics, in which we try to lay out how to go about uh, studying geopolitics at an institution, at an academic institution that might not have uh, courses in geopolitics or even a major in geopolitics. So uh, we, we've attempted to uh, uh, create a series of guideposts for students in that setting you know, on the web at the mckinderforum.org. On the other hand, if you're wanting to learn more about geopolitics, and do it in a uh, relatively non-academic way. There are authors who are of genuine utility 
I would recommend to begin with Robert Kaplan's work. Robert Kaplan is a geopolitically informed author who's traveled the world and he's reported on what he's seen that has geopolitical relevance. Uh, his book, Bulk and Ghosts, is regarded as a classic, but he's written, I would guess, another 10 or 11 books, all of which are about different regions of the world and document what he's seen and his reflections on the geopolitics of different locations in different regions. I might also urge people undergraduates, again, who might want to learn something about geopolitics, but not necessarily in an academic setting, to read certain science fiction writers. Frank Herbert comes to mind. Uh, his book, Dune and the sequels, are informed by geopolitics. Uh, Frank Herbert's book, Dune, reads like a futuristic version of Ibn Khaldun, which is one of the classics of geopolitics, one of the classic authors of geopolitical uh, thinking. So there, there are a number of different ways to approach the study of geopolitics without necessarily being in academia. Uh, I would also urge anyone who is interested in geopolitics to read widely read postings by different uh, scholars and journalists on a wide variety of think tank web pages. We have a list of those also at the mckinderforum.org. Um, Stratfor is certainly a place to begin. Gatestone Institute, Heritage Foundation, uh, Hudson Institute. Uh, many of these places post uh, assessments that are geopolitically informed. I would say that any corporate executive who is involved in international commerce or international investment nowadays needs to be informed about political risk. And I've posted uh, with my co-author, Michael Hochberg, an essay on political risk and international corporations uh, through uh, Real Clear Defense, which lays out uh, some of the reasons for taking geopolitics into account when engaging in an assessment of political risk. That is just one arena, uh, perhaps an important arena, in which geopolitics can, in fact, inform uh, uh, decision-making. Well, and I know we're pushing to the end of our time here. I definitely second your assertion on reading widely. And, and I'd throw in, um, read as much uh, foreign literature as you can as well. It's part of understanding the way, different ways of thinking and approaching concepts and ideas. And I think that that's an important piece of geopolitics is not necessarily trying to apply a unifying theory to the world and that everything works one way, but actually recognizing that the interaction of people in place over time has created different ways of perceiving and seeing and understanding. And and the more we can be sensitive to those different ways, uh, the more we can better understand what's driving um, potential competitors or partners in other parts of the world. I think that the classic written by Sansa in 
China, The Art of War, uh, lays out a justification for not only understanding your own values and interests and fears, but also laying out uh, a justification for understanding those factors as they manifest themselves in your adversaries. And by gaining a better sense of how interests, fears, and uh, values manifest themselves uh, abroad, you can be a more effective negotiator, a more effective military analyst, a more effective uh, geopolitical thinker. We're going to have to stop it here, but thank you for your time today. Well, thank you for the interview. Thank you for the opportunity. Len Hochberg is a senior fellow at FPRI and the U.S. coordinator for the McKinder Forum. Stay up to date on the latest geopolitical developments. Sign up for our free newsletter. Visit worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Roger Baker, and thank you for listening. Thank you.